0: All right. I need you to pay close attention today. Like other weeks, I don't really care if you do or not. But today, no, I, I really. Let me tell you why. Um, first of all, I'm really glad you're here. Uh, glad that you've chosen to to be here today. I know Donnie already welcomed you officially, but um, we're what we've been doing for the last several weeks, and we're going to continue to do up, right up until Christmas time. Is we're looking at Matthew five through seven now. The first four books of the New Testament, if you're brand new to the Bible, let me say if you are, I'm really, really glad that you're here. Um, The Bible is divided into two sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. and And each one of those is divided into books. There's 66 of them total. We call them books. They're just different documents that we've put together into one book. And the first four of the New Testament are these guys' names, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And and we call those first four books of the New Testament the Gospels because gospel is an old word that means good news. And the reason we call those four books the Gospels or the Good News is because those four books tell the story of Jesus. They tell the story from his birth to his time here on earth to his death on a cross to his resurrection to the time he went back to heaven, And so it's uh, great stuff, and, and, and in Matthew 5 through 7, there's a section there of those, those chapters, 5, 6, and 7, there's a section there we call the Sermon on the Mount, and it was Jesus, it was one long time of teaching uh, that Jesus gave while he was standing up on a mountainside, and all his disciples were gathered around him, his disciples were his followers, the people that were trying to live their life under the way that he was teaching. And so when we read through Matthew 5 through 7, we read through the Sermon on the Mount, there's so much good stuff in there for us today. And there's parts of it that um, can be a little hard for us to handle when we hear it in today's culture. And so I want to be sure that what I communicate to you today is very clear. And uh, so I want, you to, I want you to do your part, if you will, Try not to think about where you're going to eat after church. And like some of you right now, you're thinking, well, Cliff, I wasn't thinking about it till you mentioned it. And now my mouth's watering because you, th-, you know. But try not to think about where you're going to eat after church. Try not to think about what you got to do this afternoon. Really, really try not to think about what this week entails for you at work. Because you just need to get away from that for a little while. And try to focus on what we're talking about. And because this passage of Scripture... Um, can be very difficult. And the other thing is, is, I'm teaching on 10 verses, and really there's probably three sermons that could be preached in these 10 verses. And I was going through it this week. Well, I was, I've been going through it for a couple of weeks, and then I was going through it this week to kind of go over what I'd already done. And I thought, whose idea was it to preach these 10 verses on one Sunday? Then I was like, that was a dumb. And then I went, oh yeah, that was me. I'm the one who came up with this whole calendar. Um, so let me just let me start by just going and reading the verses to you. And, uh, and, then, and then we'll jump into it. So I'm going to read all 10 verses at one time. We're in Matthew chapter 5, starting with verse 27. And it says this. You have heard that it was said, do, you, uh, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body. To be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. And it has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, "...for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply, yes or no, anything beyond this comes from the evil one." Now there's a lot of things in this world, in in, in our lives, that we get defensive about very easily. And it just depends on who you are and what your life journey has been based on what offends you, what you get defensive about very easily. Uh, Some of you, if uh, one thing I think that's common is your kid goes to a certain school and so you can get real defensive if somebody says something about that school or don't dare say anything about the football team from that school and then it's like, you know, all out war. Well, y'all are this and y'all are that and we just get real defensive about lots of things in life. And there are certain things that people say that just immediately make us bow up. And imagine if, imagine if I came up to you and I said, you know what, the problem with your wife is, and before I finish that sentence, if you're any decent husband at all, you're like already bowing up, like, right, what, you and me are about to fight, right? And, but maybe if I finish the sentence with, you know, the problem with your wife is she loves people so much and is so sweet that... People tend to run over her sometimes and take advantage of her. See, I'm saying something good. But when I start it with the problem with your wife, you immediately get defensive. And let's just be honest here. Verse 31 and 32 of the passage that I read right there are things that some of you right now where you're sitting, you are already in a defensive position. Because you've experienced divorce and and all that kind of stuff, and and right now you're thinking, I don't like that, I don't like what Jesus said, I don't want to hear what Cliff has to say about it, and you're already feeling defensive, and that's okay. And I want to tell you, that's totally normal for you to feel that way. This is what I want to ask you to do, just hang with me. Don't don't turn it off yet, just hang with me and and let me finish what I think we need to say here. Um, And then there's other parts of this passage of Scripture that are just flat-out weird, all right? Talking about gouging out eyeballs and cutting off hands, that's just weird. I don't care. It's okay for us to say that the Bible is weird, and that's weird for, for Jesus to say, poke your eyeball out if you lusted a woman. And guys, I'm going to get into that in a minute about how many of us would be walking around without eyeballs, all right? but So there's some just some strange stuff here. But what we need to remember about these passages of Scripture, it reminds me of, and I've probably told this story to you before, but it's the best way that I can think of to describe it. It reminds me of when I, I went to college, and, um, and I did fairly well in college. And, and, uh, I made, in, in high school, I was a, a B.C. student with an occasional D. That was me in high school. Kids, do not do, I'm not saying that's what you should do. That's what you should not do, all right? Then when I went to college... I was an A-B student with an occasional C, so I, I raised the level up, which is pretty good. Then when I got to seminary, that's the, the fancy school that you go to that me and Donnie went to so that we can learn how to, you know, use big fancy words and that kind of stuff. It's where they teach you to be a pastor and all that kind of stuff, and it was good. It was a good experience. But when I, when I got to seminary, I'll never forget, I sat down in my first class. It was a theology class, and I took my first exam. Been there maybe three or four weeks and had my very first exam in there. And, and I got the grade back, the day I got the grade back, the professor gives it back, and um, I had made a 95. And I thought, man, just aced my first test of seminary. I'm pretty doggone smart. You know, I was feeling really good. And this guy sitting next to me said, what'd you make? He knew it was my first. I said, I made a 95. He said, man, that's awesome, made a high B on your first. I said, what are you talking about a high B, man, a 95? Every level of school I'd ever been in, a 95 was an A. But guess what? At seminary, an A was 96 to 100. A B was 90 to 95. And so, yeah, it was a good grade, but it wasn't an A, and I thought I'd gotten an A. And what I realized was is that I had come to a place where the standards had been raised. I was used to 93 to 100, 92 to 100. Even some classes I had in college were 90 to 100. Those classes were awesome. I signed up for as many of those as I could get. But now I came to a place where the standards had been raised. What was an A was harder to achieve than the place I had been before. And what you need to understand about what Jesus is doing here in the Sermon on the Mount, he is raising standards. He is raising standards for the people who were listening to him at that time, and he's also raising standards for us. You see, at that time, the people that he was speaking to had all been raised in the Jewish tradition. And they had a set of laws that they tried to obey, and then you had these Pharisees and these Sadducees and these teachers of the law. That was just the, the guys who were really experts in the law. And they had gone into the law, and then they had added a bunch of laws on top of the other laws that God had given. And people felt like, as long as we do that, we're good. And Jesus comes in, and he says, the law is good, and we talked about that a couple of weeks ago, and... He said, I'm not here to do away with the law, but I want to take what you know, and I want I want to raise the standard. You've thought it was okay to live at this level, but I want you to know that you need to be living at this level. You need to move up. You need to raise your standard of living, your standard of following Jesus, your standard of morality, and it needs to be higher than it has ever been. And so all of the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus raising the standards. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago When in verse 20, and it's not going to be on the screen, but remember in, in Matthew five twenty, Jesus said to the folks listening, he said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. And remember, we talked about how hard that was for the people to understand. And we talked about the fact that the only way that their standard of living could be more righteous than the Pharisees, was through Jesus. He was the only one that could make that possible. And so what he's doing throughout this time together, as he's raising the standards, last week when Donnie talked, Donnie talked about how Jesus said in there that if you call someone a fool, you speak to someone with contempt. It's the same as murder. And we hear that and we're like, man, what is, is Jesus crazy? He's saying that if I cuss somebody out, that's the same as murder. And if I look at a woman lustfully, I got to gouge out my eyeball. What is going on with this? But he's raising standards. And what he's saying is, is he's saying that I want you to live differently. I don't want you just to skim by here on the bottom and think just obeying the law is enough. It's so much more than that. And so... One of the things that Jesus does in these first couple of verses when he says, you've heard it, you know, you shall not commit adultery, but anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery. If your right eye causes you to sin... Gouge it out. If, if your uh, right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to have those parts of your body removed than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Jesus is intentionally being shocking there because he wants people to understand that what happens internally inside of us is, is just as important and maybe even more important than what we do externally. See, I think sometimes we believe that as long as we don't commit the sin, then we're, we're covered. We can think about it. We can think about what we would want to do. We can, somebody can do us wrong and we can think about all the words we want to say to them and all the ways we want to beat their tail and all the things you want to do to that woman and all that kind of stuff. And you can have that stuff floating around your mind and we think that's okay. And Jesus is saying, listen, I'm raising the standards here. And what you need to understand is that what goes on inside of you internally is just as important as the sin that you commit externally. That, that what you think about is just as important as what your hand actually does. Does because he's raising the standard. See, one of the reasons that's so serious is there's there's two things I think that that Jesus wants us to understand about the reason why this internal struggle is so serious. The first one is is that what is in our heart is who we truly are. What's in our heart is who we really are. One of the things that that we can be good at, and and I know I'm good at it, and, and you probably are too, is we can really be good at fooling people who we really are by the way we act and, and talk. And you can act a certain way around a certain person, and they can think you're one way, but that's not who you are. Because who you are is what you're thinking about. Who, is our, who you are is what your heart is dwelling on. I experience this all the time as a pastor, because people clean themselves up when they find out I'm a pastor. I've had, it, one of the things that I love to do is have a conversation with a stranger. They don't know who I am, and they drop three or four cuss words, which is awesome, you know. And then they ask, they'll inevitably say, well, what do you do? And I'll say, I'm a pastor. And man, the cuss word, they'll apologize for cussing, like I've never heard those words before, or like I've never said those words before. And then they, they won't cuss anymore. You know, it's like they totally clean themselves up. Well, I'm, I'm in the presence of a pastor now. And what are they doing? They're putting on a facade, they're putting on a mask of who they really are. But when we try to do that, we're not fooling God. Because what's in our heart is who we truly are. And the thing is, what's in our heart is what we're going to be judged on. So when Jesus says there, listen, if you look lustfully at a woman, you need to, you need to poke your eyeball out. He's not literally meaning poke your eyeball out because men, if that was true, most of us would be walking around with zero eyeballs or maybe some of you would only have one eyeball left and you'd put a patch over it so that you wouldn't have to poke it out the next time you lusted after a woman because we struggle with that, don't we, men? Ladies, I'm sorry to let you know your husband struggles with lust and if he tells you he doesn't, call him a liar, all right? Tell him Cliff said you're lying and guys, we've got to, we've got to deal with that. We've got to take that struggle to Jesus and say, I need you to help me with this. We've got to work a system into our lives so that we don't do that, that we don't put ourselves in that, in that position. But, so what Jesus is saying there, he's not saying literally poke your eyeball out, but what he's making the point is, is to say, if your eye causes you to sin, you need to gouge it out. You better clean up your heart. Because what's in your heart is who we truly are. And the only person that can clean up our hearts is Jesus accepting him. He's the only one that can do it. The the second thing that I think why this is so important is what's inside eventually comes out. What's inside eventually comes out. Now I know I just said a while ago that we can fool people. We can for a while. Um, when uh, I don't know how many of y'all drink how many of y'all drink Dr Pepper. You might like who's a big Dr Pepper fan. I'm not a it kind of tastes like flat root beer to me. I'm not a big fan of it, but but one of the things about Dr Pepper those of you who drink a lot of Dr. Pepper, you know that out of all the carbonated drinks, if any drink is going to over... You know, when you open it up, if it's going to spew out everywhere. It's Dr. Pepper. I don't know why that is. I don't know if they put extra carbonation in it at the factory. But <clears throat> several years ago, when I was doing youth ministry, we were having a, an after-church fellowship at somebody's house, and I would not have believed this if I hadn't seen it myself... This guy, he opened up a Dr. Pepper and there was so much pressure built up under that cap. That cap shot all the way up and hit the fluorescent, the, the plastic covering on the fluorescent light bulb and cracked it. That's how much pressure, which what I was hoping would happen after that is somebody would do that and it would hit him like right between the eyes and see if that would happen. But, but it, that's how much pressure was built up. And when we, when we live our lives in such a way where there's all this stuff inside of us, stuff that doesn't glorify God, and we think that we can we can keep it hidden and that it, well this is nobody else has to know this and, and this is i just have this one thought in my heart and i dwell on this one thing but but it, i'll never let that come out nobody will ever know that no what's inside eventually comes out and sometimes it comes out just like that dr pepper it is an explosion and the collateral damage for the people in your life is terrible and then sometimes it comes out much slower sometimes it seeps out a little bit at a time, and the people that live in your household, they know it first. The people that you spend time with at work, they begin to see it. And because what's inside of us always comes out. And so what begins in our heart then begins to play out in our speech and play out in our actions. Jesus said this uh, in Luke chapter six forty-five. Look on your screen. It's going to be there. <clears throat> it says this, The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, And the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks. Out of the overflow of his heart. The stuff that comes out of us, it began down in here. It began in our heart and it began in our mind. So when Jesus says all this stuff about, hey, cut off hands, gouge out eyes, all that kind of stuff, what he's saying is, this stuff is important because it's going to come out eventually. And when it does, it's going to lead you to sin. Sin leads you to hell. And you need to be sure that your heart is cleaned up and only Jesus can clean up your heart. Now, I want to skip for just a second. I told you this is almost like three messages. I want to skip the next two verses for just a minute. That's the divorce verses. And I'm going to finish up with those. And I want to skip to the parts in verse 33 through 37 where Jesus begins to talk to the people there about taking oaths. And he talks to them and he says things like, you've heard it said to the people, you know, if you break your oath but fulfill to the Lord your vows, and he says in there, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven or by earth or by Jerusalem, and do not swear by your head, for you cannot make one hair black or white. And then he says, your yes should be yes and your no should be no. Simply yes or no, anything beyond that comes from the evil one. I think it's interesting that in this passage of Scripture, in this part of the teaching, that Jesus talks about marriage, and then he follows that up by talking about oaths. Because there's only two places in our society today where we take an oath, where we take a vow. There's only two that I can think of, and maybe you can, well, there's probably, maybe if you enter in the service, if you enter into the army or something, there's one, or if you become a naturalized citizen, there's probably one. But for most of us, there's only two that we will experience. That is the day you get married, and then if you ever have to testify in court. Those are the two places that we take oaths. And you know as well as I do that both of those oaths get broken regularly. The, the marriage oath gets broken all the time, And the oath that people take in court is the biggest farce that there is in our society because every trial, somebody breaks it. You know how I know that is because this guy stands up here, he puts his hand on his Bible, he takes an oath to tell the truth, nothing but the truth, so help you God, they do all that. And then he stands up there and he tells one version of a story. Then another guy gets up there, takes the same oath on the same Bible, he gets up there and tells the exact opposite story of the guy who already testified. Somebody is lying. And it happens every single trial. We live in a time period which is not a lot different than the time period Jesus lived in, which is oaths don't really mean a whole lot to us. We swear by things. We swear. We take an oath on the day we get married, and then we break that vow. We take an oath when we testify, and then we break that vow. It doesn't really mean a whole lot to us. And what Jesus is saying here when he talks about don't swear by anything, and back then they swore by stuff all the time. They'd swear by their beard which is pretty cool if you have a beard, I guess. They swore by, you know, their dead mothers and fathers. They swore by all kind of stuff. Now, I grew up in a household, I don't know how y'all grew up, but I grew up in a household that even if I said I swear and didn't swear, by, like if I just said, God, I swear, man, I was, yeah you, you know, tail tore up, sent to your room. You did not swear in the Marshall household growing up. That was just something you did not do. You didn't say, oh my God, you didn't say darn, you didn't even say, you know, shoot, because that was too close to another word. And so that was just the the home I grew up in. And so I grew up in a time where they were, you know, teaching me literally what this says. I don't think Jesus thinks it's a real big deal if you tomorrow get mad and you say, God, I swear. I don't think he's going to send you to hell for that. In fact, I know he's not going to. But here is what he's saying. What he's saying is, is your word should mean something. That if, especially if we're followers of him, Our words should mean something. If we say we're going to do something, we should follow through on it. If we say we believe something, we should live like we believe it. And that's why at the end when he says simply yes or no should be enough. You shouldn't have, you should live your life in such a way that if I if I should live my life in such a way, if I tell you I'm going to do something, I shouldn't have to say to you, I swear, I swear, I swear I'm going to do it this time. I just I promise you, just believe me, I swear I'll be there. I shouldn't have to do that. Because I should be living my life in such a way where if I say, yes, I'll do that, you'll know Cliff's a man of his word. He'll follow through on what he said he's going to do. Or if I say, no, I'm not going to be there, you'll know that I mean that. And so Jesus is saying, we should be people who can be trusted. And you know why that's so important? It's because all of us are surrounded by folks who don't know Jesus. You, hopefully, you work in a place where you are surrounded by people who don't know Jesus. And they are only going to find out about him through you. And if you're a man or a woman of your word, then when you begin to talk to them about who Jesus is, they're going to know, I've been able to trust him and everything else he's ever told me. I've been able to trust her for years in the things she said to me. So when she's talking to me about Jesus, or when he's talking to me about Jesus, I can trust that as well. It's important that we be people of our word because we have an opportunity to tell people about who Jesus is. Now, I want to get into verse 31 and 32. And before I do, I want to read it to you one more time. What 31 and 32 says, says this. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress, and anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. Now, what is Jesus doing here? Let's remind each other. What did I tell you at the beginning that Jesus is doing in all of Matthew 5 through 7? What is he doing? Raising standards. Say it with me. He's raising standards. Let's keep that in mind as we talk about this. Now, verse 31 there, when it says, it has been said uh, that anyone who divorces wife, must write her a certificate of divorce. This was a Jewish tradition at this time. When Jesus was given this, remember, he was talking to a Jewish audience. And the Jewish tradition was based on a bad interpretation of a a passage in Deuteronomy. You can go back and look at it yourself later. Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. It's not going to be on the screen, but you can go back and look at that later. Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. And the, the, the Jewish leaders had interpreted this section of verses in such a way that they had decided that a man could divorce his wife for just about anything that just about any time he decided that he could write her a certificate of divorce, it wasn't even, you didn't even have to go to the courthouse, you didn't even have to go to the temple, you could basically write it out on a napkin. And you could say, write it out, and that would be official, and that that was according to the Jewish tradition at the time. They were following the law. And that's why Jesus here is raising the standard. And he's saying, no, it should not be that easy to get a divorce. And so it was the, at that time, if you're a man and you're married to you know, a woman and she comes in and says, hey, my mother's coming to visit again this weekend, he's like, well, that's it. That woman is here too much. I'm divorcing you, right? Now that might be, I don't know, that might be grounds for divorce. I'm just, I'm not sure. Depending on how that mother acts when she gets here. I'm just kidding. Um, whatever it was, a, a man could write his wife a certificate of divorce. Now, what this was doing, what this did was, This was perverting God's original intent for marriage. This was messing up what what God's original intent from the beginning was of marriage. And not to mention the fact that it was extremely degrading to women. For a man to have total control of when the marriage ended was extremely degrading to women, See, God's inri- original intent for marriage was established way back at the Garden of Eden where you had Adam and Adam uh, was by himself and God said, I'm going to create Eve so that they can be together and they're going to spend their entire marriage life, they're going to spend their entire life together. And some of you are like, hey, Cliff, what about all those people in the Old Testament that married a bunch of people? Didn't King David have a bunch of wives and Solomon had like, you know, just a ton of wives and all that kind of stuff? Yes, and I would tell you that those people also were perverting the, God's original intent for marriage. God's original intent for marriage was a man and a woman. The two of them would get married and they would stay together till one or both of them died. That was it. That was what he decided. In Matthew 19:6, Jesus even said that later when he said this, So they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. And so when Jesus says here uh, to the folks, listen, you've heard it said that you can write somebody a certificate of divorce, and Jesus said, no, what I'm telling you is that's not the case, that if you do that, then you're causing the woman to commit adultery, and you're going to commit adultery if you remarry somebody else. What he's doing is he's raising the standard, and he's correcting the course. He's making a course correction, because years ago, he had set them on this course, and they had gotten off just a few degrees. And once you know anybody that's ever done any kind of GPS kind of stuff, if you get off just a couple of degrees, well, the further you go, the more off track you get. And they had gotten way off track for years and years and years. And Jesus said, no, I'm going to correct the course here. I'm going to get you back to where you're supposed to be. Now, one of the things that when we read these passages on divorce, if you've been through a divorce... You're going through a divorce. One of the things that we do when we read these passages is we read them and reread them and we break down every word and we try to make our situation fit into these verses. I've heard people, the part in, in there where Jesus said that if you divorce except for marital unfaithfulness, I've heard people say, well, you know what? Um, I didn't have, uh, you know, my, my spouse didn't have a, a physical affair, but they had an emotional affair. So that's the same thing as being unfaithful. So it's okay for me to divorce them. I've heard people say, well, they broke the vow of trying to, you know, take care of each other because he lost his job and whatever. So it's okay for me to divorce them. And what happens is, is we go to this Scripture not looking for it to change us, but we go to the Scripture looking for loopholes and to say, My divorce is justified, and here's why, because of this one little word, and if you look up what it means in the original Greek, it could mean this, and Beth Moore said this in a Bible study I read, and my pastor said this one time on Sunday morning, and so everything's okay, my divorce was really good, and it wasn't a bad divorce, and God's pleased with it. That's what people say. But I want to tell you a couple facts about divorce, as if you don't already know it. And here's the first fact. Divorce is always a tragedy. Always. Divorce is always a tragedy. You see, what we can do is we can convince ourselves that it was right. We can convince ourselves it was the only option. But the truth of the matter is, there are few things on this earth that match divorce when it comes to how destructive they can be. And if. If I wanted to, I could bring the microphone that Chris sang on this morning and set it up here and have open mic and say, okay, this is an open mic. You can come up here and testify to how tragic divorce is. And there are those of you in here that I know that I've talked to that could come up here and you could say, let me tell you how terrible divorce is. This is what it did to my kids. This is what it did to the next relationship I was in. This is what it did to my parents. This is what it did to me emotionally. You could tell us a lot better than I could tell you how bad divorce is. Divorce is always a tragedy. It takes an emotional toll. And, and the thing about it is, is that God is never pleased with divorce. Now I'm not saying, don't hear what I'm not saying here. I'm not saying that Uh, that every single divorce that you've ever been in, that some of them maybe you did need to get out of that marriage. If you were abused, other situations like that, maybe you had no option. You did everything you could and they decided they were done with it and you you could not do anything else. But don't fool yourself into believing that just because you feel like you were right, that God's looking down and said, hey, that's a good thing. That divorce was great. No, divorce breaks God's heart. And it's always tragic. The second fact is this. We've all been touched by divorce. Everybody in this room in somewhere or another has been touched by a divorce. Either you've been through one, either you're married to somebody who has th- been through one before they married you, your parents did when you were growing up, your parents did when you were an adult, um, you're, you're a, an adult that has grown kids and they got divorced, whatever it is. We've all been touched by divorce, and so we all know somewhat of the pain that that goes through. So, let me, I've got some words for, for two groups of people. And I, I want you to listen real close. If, uh, if, if you fell asleep or you started thinking about Taco Bell, zone back in right now, all right? And if you're going to write anything down today in your notes or on your iPhone or whatever, write this down. For those people who are divorced, who've been divorced, who are going through a divorce, this is what I want you to know. God is a gracious God. God who makes all things new. Let me say that again, because I want to be sure you hear it. God is a gracious God who makes all things new. One of the things that God specializes in, I've experienced in my own life, I've talked to hundreds of people who could tell you the same thing. One of the things that God specializes in is taking our mistakes and making something good out of them. It doesn't mean that our mistake wasn't a mistake. It doesn't mean that that we didn't commit a sin. But what it means is that He can take something like that and He can make something good out of it. I got heard a guy one time that said it a little harsher than I'm going to say it now. But he said, God can make chicken salad out of chicken crap. It's okay to laugh at that. But God, He specializes in taking our mistakes he gave us this life, right? He gave us this life to, to live. He gave us this relationship to be in and then we messed it all up and, and we think that there's no way we can get out of that and He can take that and then He can make something good out of it. And you can read it throughout Scripture where God is a gracious God and He can make all things new. But I want, I want you to listen real close to me if, you, if you've been through a divorce. But for that to happen in your life, for you to experience the full grace of God, you have to quit justifying your divorce. You have to quit saying that it's okay that you got a divorce because of this or this or this. Or you have to quit completely blaming your, your sorry ex-husband or your sorry ex-wife. You want to talk about anger? Talk to someone who's recently been divorced about their ex-husband or ex-wife. That is a level of anger that you don't hear in any other conversation. And before God can make everything new in your life, you have to get to the point where you say, they made mistakes, but so did I. You have to get to the point where you say, I am responsible for this marriage failing. But Cliff, he slept with his secretary. She ran off with our next door neighbor. You're still partially responsible for something that happened there. You didn't make them do that. You didn't commit adultery. They did. But you've got to get to the point where you say, you know what? I take responsibility for my part of this marriage failing. And when you do that, When you begin to do that, God will begin to pour out grace on you and you'll begin to experience things that you've never experienced before and a closer relationship with Him because He wants to take your life, He wants to take your broken marriage, your broken relationship, your broken emotions, and He wants to make something new in your life. But you have to get to the point where you say, I'm ready to accept that, I need it, and I want the full grace that you've got to give me, God. And I'm not saying anymore that I'm not wrong. I was wrong, and I need your grace. And I also want to talk to those of you in here today who are divorced or going through a divorce and you feel the opposite way. You feel completely covered with shame. You know it was your fault and and you feel like you've done something so wrong, you were raised in a situation to believe divorce is, is always wrong, and, and you believe the Bible, and you read these verses, and you just feel terrible, and you think that, that you're, you can never be made new again, it can never be made right, and that God can never love you. And I want to say the same thing to you that I said to the other person. Before you can begin to experience the full grace of God, and before God can begin to do something new in your life, you have to believe that He's big enough to overcome your mistake. You have to believe that when he died on the cross, that that covered your mistake that you made in that marriage. That covered your adultery. That covered your whatever it was that caused the marriage to fail. So if you're living in shame, then what's happening with you is, is that the devil is still winning in your life because you're allowing him to. Now the second group of people I want to talk to are those who are still married. And I don't care if it's your first or second marriage or third. If you're married right now, I want you to listen real close. Protect your marriage at all costs. Protect your marriage at all costs. All marriages go through ups and downs. All marriages hit rough spots. You want to know why? Because you're a part of it. You know the reason why your husband is so hard to live with, your wife is so hard to live with? Because they live with you. You know why sometimes Sherry and I have difficulty? Because I can be a selfish jerk. And if she stood up here, she would say the same thing about herself, but I'm not going to say it about her, all right? (laughs) But all marriages go through difficult times. Why? Because we're all messed up. We're all sinful. And so it's hard to be married to us. But if you're married, do whatever it takes to protect that marriage. Spend whatever money it costs. If you need to go to counseling, and chances are you do, spend the money to go to counseling. One of the things that kills me is when people tell me, well, you know, we really need counseling, but we just can't afford it. Yeah, but you can afford those two new car payments and the payment on that boat. And for everybody to have the newest smartphone that's ever been invented, you got smartphones that Steve Jobs doesn't even know about yet and all that kind of stuff. And here you are, but we can't afford to pay for marriage counseling. No, the truth is, is that you pay for what's important to you. And if your marriage is important to you, you'll come up with the money for marriage counseling. Protect your marriage at all costs. Put your needs ahead of your kids' needs. And that is not a sin. In fact, that's glorifying to God. It's a sin to put the needs of your children ahead of your own marriage. And then one day they graduate from from high school and graduate from college and they move away and it's just you and this person and now y'all don't know each other anymore. Why? Because you poured all of your lives into your children and then now they're gone and now you're stuck with this stranger that you're married to. Why? Because you did not protect your marriage. You put your kids' needs ahead of your own needs. Protect your marriage at all costs. One of the things that's sad, and I hear this story So many times is where one person or the other has decided they want the marriage to end. And um, usually, and and it is usually, the reason you know they've decided they want the marriage to end is they've begun a relationship with somebody else. And you find out about that or they tell you they want it to end and then you shortly find out thereafter that they started a relationship with somebody else. And one of the things that's so sad about that is so many times the person who's left, they get to the point where they say, well, I'm just glad it's over. Good riddance. They want to leave and you want them to leave. And when it gets to that point, what what you realize is, is that somewhere a long time ago, you stopped protecting that marriage. So if you're married right now, don't ever let it get to that point. Protect that marriage at all costs. See, having a healthy marriage should be be one of the things that you're most passionate about of anything else in the world. That's one of the things you are absolutely most passionate about. But the truth of the matter is, if, if we're honest with each other, some of you would admit that you're more passionate about your football team than you are your marriage, or you're more passionate about the fact that pumpkin spice lattes are about to be sold again at Starbucks than you are about your marriage, or you're more passionate about Black Friday sales that are coming up in a couple months than you are about your marriage. But if we are passionate about our marriage and we believe that that God put us together and we're not going to let anything tear us apart, and and the truth is there are lots of things trying to tear you apart, you have to fight for it. And if you don't fight for your marriage, let me tell you who will. Nobody. There's nobody who will fight for your marriage. You're the only person that can do that. I can't fight for your marriage for you. Because by the time I find out that you've got marriage problems, it's it's already pretty bad. By the time you tell me, and I and I have this all the time, someone will come, we need you to talk to us. And guess what? By the time I'm talking to them, they're like entering into divorce court. And then they expect a conversation with me to just somehow solve everything. No, you've got to do a lot of stuff that I don't know anything about. I can't fight for your marriage for you. Now, I kind of lied there. Sorry about that. There is one other person who will fight for your marriage for you. But Uh, He's not a human being that lives right here. God is fighting for your marriage. And the reason Jesus said... This And the reason he raised these standards so high and the reason he talked about the fact that, that you know, committing adultery and, and, uh, and, and be, becoming an adulteress and all that kind of stuff, the reason he talked about that is because he believed so strongly in marriage that he wanted you to do everything you could never to enter in to that situation. Now, if you're wondering, you're sitting here thinking, okay, Cliff, you still haven't said, uh, are we committing adultery because I got remarried? Let me say this again. God can make all things new. And I believe that when Jesus said that, he was using language just like he used language when he said, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. I think he was using that same type of language. He was wanting to make the point so hard to them that do whatever you can to protect the marriage you're in. Don't get to the point where you have to discover that. If you have been through a divorce and you're remarried and God brought the two of you together and you've dealt with the, 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 the um pain of that divorce, you've dealt with the fact that it was partially your fault that you got divorced, then God can make something brand new in your new marriage. And there are those of you in here who I know have been through that. I've married people who were getting married for the second time, so if I thought that that was some kind of a sin, I wouldn't have done that because I believe God can take your second marriage and He can make it into what your first marriage should have been. And He can bless your household. But you have to be willing to accept all of his grace. And you have to stop justifying what you did in your first relationship and allow him to work in this second relationship that you're in. Now let me say one other thing to those who are married, and I know this kind of goes along with protect your marriage at all costs. In a group this size, chances are there's a couple in here who are considering divorce right now. You talked about it this past week. Some of you are, there's probably one couple in here right now that you're even making a plan that once we get the kids out of high school that we're getting divorced. We're going to stay together for them. Please take that option off the table. Admit that you've got a long way to go. Admit that you've both messed up. Admit that it's going to be a hard road back. But if you believe God is big enough to forgive you of your sins, then you need to believe that God is big enough to save your marriage. If you believe that God can put a bunch of animals on an ark and cover the earth with rain, if you believe God can create the world in six days and rest on the seventh day, if you believe God can do all that stuff and you say, yeah, Cliff, I believe the Bible, then surely He's big enough to cover up your mess and your husband's mess or your wife's mess and your mess and get your marriage back on track. I want to finish up by praying for us, but I want you to know that. You're struggling here today with this marriage situation. God has put you in this church. He's put you in this place for a reason. There are people all around you that can help you, that can pray for you, that can walk through these days with you. He's given you His Word. Read that every day. And believe, believe, believe that He wants to make something new in your life. He's a gracious God who can make all things new. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us your word to read. And sometimes the the scripture can be difficult for us to hear. Uh, But God, I know that all of us are sinful. We've all let you down. But you don't hold that against us because you died on the cross for us so that we could be forgiven. So help us, each one of us, myself included, to see where we fall short. And to take those places that we fall short in, whether it be our marriage or anything else, to take those to you, give them over to you completely, and allow you to make something brand new in our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.